I've become so big, you can't ignore it. Are those the words of an egotistical podcast host, or in fact, the words of a YouTuber turned boxer? Well, stay tuned to find out. Hello and welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer and I'm a senior content manager here at Sports Pro and we have an exciting show this week. We're looking at job losses in the tech sector and the impact that might have on sports. We're looking at Live Golf and their recent broadcasting deal with CW Network. And then we're looking at influencer boxing and Misfits' role therein. We also have a special guest on this week's show as we're joined by the team at Explore Edmonton. So stay tuned for that. But alongside me to digest and dissect this week's show, as always, we have Mr. Tom Bassett. Hello, George. Welcome back to you, my friend. You were uh, very much absent from last week's podcast, which might be why I got so many listeners. No, no, no. They're just tuning in and uh, <laughs> leaving after a minute or two. But in all seriousness, like I thought last week's was a, an excellent show, looking at the New Era programme and hearing from some of the steering group. Yeah, the, the, the cohort were great. Good stuff. Well... Let's look, uh, let's look at some of the stories that have dominated the headlines this week. Uh, it seems that you can't turn left or right these days without hearing of yet more job losses in the tech sector. This week, it was the turn of Alphabet, Amazon, Meta and Microsoft to announce recent job cuts. Do you want to talk me through a bit of the background to that story and how it's developed in particular this week? Yeah, the sort of ongoing cuts in the tech sector, I mean, it, they've been happening now for a little while. I think more than 200,000 since the start of 2022, which is actually massive, really, when you think about it. Yeah, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft have like collectively cut 50k of those. And I mean, it's not really a surprise that the, the biggest chunk of cuts has come from the biggest companies. But you've also got to think that Twitter has cut a serious amount of jobs as well since Elon Musk took over. Mostly, I think, probably off the back of uh, the fact that there was a little bit of an overexpansion in the tech space during the pandemic when there was a lot more demand for the technology that these companies were providing and also for services that probably aren't as relevant in 2022 when we can go back to seeing people in person as they were when we were all sort of working remotely on everything, I guess. One area that I thought was particularly interesting was some of the um, some of the I guess, mini sectors within those companies that were particularly impacted. Obviously, the time you mentioned in 2020 was around Meta's rebranding from Facebook to Meta and the increased focus that would come with VR, AR and the like. But they seem to have been impacted most heavily from some of these layoffs. Why do you think that might be? I just think that the last year, people have been sort of exploring that Metaverse area, diving into like what it is, what they can actually do with it and... But basically, a lot of the companies that kind of thought that, oh, well, this is going to be the place for us. If they had a look at it, they've they've made their initial investments and actually decided that it's not worth following up on or it's not going to be as big as they thought it was going to be initially. And that's going to probably be more of a long term growth area. So, uh, yeah, it's probably no real surprise that those are the those are the business areas that are going. And that especially in a recession, these big tech firms are going to focus on sectors that are driving revenues for them like solidly rather than areas which might drive revenues for them in i don't know 
five to ten years time perhaps shorter if they're doing better at it i do find it quite intriguing as to why vr hasn't taken off um in the sports space or at all really when it comes to mass consumer use and i recently actually went to went to a vr bar where you can you can log into yourself into a pod for an hour or so play various vr games uh, and i must say i found it certainly very immersive experience and one that seems very naturally aligned to sports both you know playing um within you know the vr possibilities but also you know consuming sport i mean being able to replicate the in-stadium experience as much as you can and you know seeing some of these great institutional areas of sport you know whether that be augusta or you know the emirates stadium places like that real cathedrals of sport but it, it just really doesn't seem to have taken off or hit the mass market in any way sports always in a battle right to attract the share of people's wallet and if you're asking people to not just fork that out for, I don't know, say like their pay TV subscription, but also for a, a VR headset or a VR additional VR subscription, I just don't think that the kind of people that this is being targeted at, and I'm talking about young people mostly, that that's not really where they want to spend their money. I don't think there's been any kind of really broad like take up of VR as a concept. Like I can't imagine a family, for example, sitting around on a Sunday afternoon to, to watch Sky Super Sunday and all sitting there with their individual headsets on while chatting and taking in the game. It's just like, it's just a stupid vision, isn't it? It may come to 2050 and that is exactly what's happening. But I, I just don't think that we're anywhere near that in terms of like the take up of those products. To me, it seems, it seems a little bit like there hasn't been a, you talked about some of the like, immersive experiences that exist and I'm sure they're great. Until there's something that really, like, really changes the game on that, I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, we've been through so many different things that have like tried to come in and fundamentally change the broadcast setup because that's really what it is, isn't it? It's some kind of content consumption. And actually, there's been relatively few innovations that have truly changed it from a consumer perspective. And I don't think that VR is particularly going to be that. AR, maybe. Like AR, people like a kind of augmented reality experience like they like the kind of the um they like being able to put stuff over the like overlays onto things that already exist and that's been brought into different different elements of the the sports broadcast experience and i think as people adopt 5g technologies more into their into their portable devices we'll see that but i yeah it's the kind of at the moment it's a it's a it's probably not worth the, the sort of investment that these big tech companies were putting in and hence why they've backed off it at the cost of like a real human cost as well and i don't think that should be overlooked in this is it's always one of those things i feel quite conflicted in commissioning and stories like this is because it's like well we're sort of talking about people's lives here i mean that's two hundred thousand people that are out of work like those people are highly skilled and actually there's not it's not massively transferable so where do you where do you put them in in, in a time of recession it's it's troubling not just for the sports industry i think for the wider global economy too for sure well another institution that's certainly under financial strife but you know maybe represents a, a change in that trajectory is live golf um with its recent broadcast partnership announced this week with the cw network um do you want to talk me through some of the terms of that deal and why we've got to where we are there this is another chapter in the evolving story the cw rights deal is was sort of first reported by the Sports Business Journal at the back end of last year. This was a possibility for Liv. Um, they've gone around the houses with all the other major networks and due to basically quite a lot of existing relationships and the, the tentacles of the PGA Tour, they just weren't going to happen. I think the the big, the most sort of creditable report was 
that Liv was about to pay, pay for some airtime on Fox. We should point out for those of you listening and haven't read the full story that CW Network is a it's a big uh, broadcaster in the US. It's not a main network. It's not an NBC, ABC level of broadcaster. It's in 120 million households across the US, but it's not. We're not talking about a tier one broadcaster here. And clearly, that's the level that Liv has had to settle for. Some other interesting things about it, I guess, is that Liv is paying for the production and selling its own ads. There's probably, uh, there's, there's not been confirmed, but it doesn't look like there's a fee for, for Liv in this. I guess both of those two things are sort of to be expected for that golf tour, given the conversations that were being had before, talks of paying Fox for their airtime last year, and those struggles, as, as previously mentioned, to, to just get a deal over the line. So the fact they've got a deal, probably good for them, but at the same time, like it, it definitely looks like a bit of an L. They want to position themselves as this challenger series with these major golf names. They'd have definitely wanted better than what they've got. Yeah, I think that that's the point, isn't it? Is it's definitely damaging to the live pride. You, you talked of CW Network being, you know, an extensive reach, but not one of the tier one broadcasters. Live is certainly positioning itself as a tier one challenger brand. It's certainly got the tier one wallet behind it, and uh, and and the tier one names um, with the tour as well. But do you think it's a case of you know? almost the first step is the most important one and yes it's damaging for their pride now and it's not a fantastic look from the outside but this is an important and very momentous first step in increasing that reach and in accessing you know those millions of households across the US to grow its brand and grow its portfolio further I think it I think for this to be a success it really has to deliver as a product if it's able to demonstrate to a sort of even if it's not a massive audience, but it, the reviews coming out of it are like, this is actually a great TV product, this really works, then, you, yeah, it, will, it could act as like a proof of concept. It will definitely put itself in front of more eyeballs. That's like kind of, it goes without saying. But if it's able to successfully prove that it's a good product, which I don't think really that's kind of been conclusively shown so far, then it will be a sort of, ah, uh, yeah, well, uh, we had to get, we had to get the, the CW deal done in order to get the, the next bigger broadcast deal done then it will prove out but it could also be a sort of a foreshadowing for a, a winding down too if, if in a year's time we're talking about the fact that the ratings are miserable there's been no real sort of there's, there's not been the innovation there's not been the the big turnaround really in what we were promised by live golf in terms of the, the product out on the course and the entertainment that like snapping up some of those big names you kind of assumed would provide if that sort of we get another we get through their 14 event calendar this year and nothing's really changed then yeah i mean see the, the sort of deal with the cw network will be a bit like a okay well that's probably still about where we are we've talked about it before that a lot of lives marketability almost comes out of conflict mm. uh, and its position against the pga tour and this desire to be seen as, as a disruptive challenger brand but we're not really seeing the proof in the pudding there certainly in terms of formats and what's happening out on the course and as those defections naturally become less and less given there's a, a smaller pool with which to access that story is likely to sort of fade away into the background but i do wonder whether the release of full swing in february and bringing back into focus some of that tension and some of those conflicts where that will reignite a bit of an interest in live and now that there is a broadcast deal to essentially broadcast the product right that there might be a renewed interest do you think that's a possibility I think it's a possibility. I'm actually more concerned by the sort of some of the exits that we've seen from from Liv in in the in the last few months. So we had Atul Kosler 
leave the business in December. That's the chief operating officer. We had Matt Goodman, the president of their franchises, which is another kind of area that no one really talks about, is these teams that they think are going to be extremely monetizable. But so far, very little evidence of that. He left uh, following the first year. And now we've seen uh, Majed, uh, Majed El Soror, the uh, the managing director and the CEO of Golf Saudi. Um He's stepped away from from his role. And kind of what that means is there's a bit more power for Greg Norman, which, I mean, I'm sure he thinks is is good, but I'm not sure that's good for Live Golf. I think you mentioned the... Yeah, mentioned that a lot of its a lot of the interest comes from its, like, compatibility and the fact that it sort of seems to engage more around the kind of the spikier elements of its breakaway nature, I guess. Greg Norman becoming more central to that will, I think, will only increase that. And actually, that's probably not what it needs if it wants to get itself on side with not just the PGA Tour, but like with the majors too. I, I don't think conflict is a good place when it comes to those kind of things. And I think Liv's future only really exists if it's able to strike a partnership with those established uh, with those established tournaments, with those established tours and coexist like that rather than trying to basically replace the other and i know greg norman has said that's not their goal but i think that you can see from the way they behaved that its interest is very much in bringing down its rivals yeah it doesn't seem as if that compromise is forthcoming let's look at another challenger brand that has a slightly different trajectory to to live golf one that has seen great success in the last six months or so and that's influencer boxing and um, the rise of misfits um, as an example. So I know we've just come off the back of the recent misfits fight between KSI and FaZe Temper. Um, I, I probably should say that KSI is the originator of that quote I mentioned at the beginning of the, <laughs> of the show rather than myself getting slightly ahead of it. Um, so Tom, what is misfits and what's been happening in the world of boxing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting case actually for... Um, it's probably the ultimate case for the the, the influencer sports crossover. Um, Misfits is a is a boxing promotion essentially, but it's not one that promotes traditional fighters. It's a, it's a collaboration between KSI, big time YouTuber, and Wasserman, um, and specifically Wasserman's boxing division, which is led by Kala Sauerland, who uh, big name on the on the European fight scene at least. That was established last year, and then. Earlier this month, so start of 2023, Misfits signed a five-year exclusive deal with The Zone to carry its fights globally. That includes a couple of pay-per-view fights a year. Those pay-per-view bouts will be in some, uh, just just be priced up in some key markets. So taking advantage of that pay-per-view tier, which The Zone introduced into its into its global product last year, I believe. The reason why that that deal exists is because of the popularity of these these contests, it's seen mostly by boxing traditionalists as a bit of a bit of a joke. The numbers definitely aren't. Misfit show last August pulled in nearly two million global viewers for the zone. Ninety percent of those were new subscribers, and those are definitely going to be people in those younger age demographics, which are really really key for for broadcasters, especially for the zone. Other content around that fight brought in something like thirty million views across the zone socials. It's just a very, very different section of um, sports fans that they're talking to with this kind of stuff. Like, it's not for your old traditional boxing fans, really, unless they are like 
super hip and really into their YouTube content as well. It's, it is for like younger generations. That bit you talked about of boxing fans almost being annoyed at these things taking place, it's what you want, right? We see the same thing with other new formats that get launched in other sports. We talked about this with 100. You know, there's almost, if there is disgruntlement amongst the traditional fan, you're doing something right because you are attracting new audience bases and you're attracting the right demographics to those sports for future growth. So you're getting that... that that nearly 2 million global viewers for a, uh, an influencer boxing fight, those viewers are all going to be outside of the traditional age demographic. And that can only be a good thing because they are coming into your platform. If you've got the content that interests them, they're going to stay there. And that's especially true for DAZN, right? Yeah. DAZN that sets itself up as this disruptor, almost the cool kid on the block when it comes to streaming and broadcast platforms. It's so important that they have that suite of content behind them that keeps the Gen Z fan and that keeps that younger demographic with its content, right? That reduces the churn and actually sets it up for future subs growth. Yeah, exactly. If you're able to kind of keep and retain those users who wouldn't normally be on there, and you've got those other users as well who are watching other sports content that is more traditional to a sports platform, then that can only be a good thing. If you're a, I don't know, a sort of slightly more traditional operation without any of that kind of content, then it's a much bigger challenge for you to bring those younger users on. If you've got a way of doing it and you can find a way to make sure that they stay there, then that's, uh, yeah, that's a pot of gold. It's also another vote of confidence that younger sports fans follow the athletes, not the sports necessarily. Um, I, I found it very interesting seeing the Jake Paul deal signed with the PFL where he essentially takes a cut of the revenue within their new pay-per-view tier and equity in the overall business. A clear sign that actually Jake Paul is the asset, not necessarily the influence of boxing itself by keeping you know someone like Jake Paul on the platform and using his immense global reach to essentially highlight that property and to market its fights. You know, it's setting you up for immense success going forward. Yeah, and it's also the way that they market. Like, you could have a traditional fighter who is as good at social media as a as your standard boohoo man, carbon copy influencer. But if they're able to sort of tap into that same way of marketing themselves on social, then, like, there's actually no reason why that model couldn't work for a traditional athlete as well. They just have to learn from the social media influencers on how to do it properly and that's something that's not really happened and not really been a part of the the toolkit for an athlete previously because they've had other things and other people to do that for them like they just have to worry about the fights well actually it seems like if you're able to i mean we haven't really seen it yet i don't think with a an athlete influencer in the same way that's an athlete first and an influencer second but if you like when that happens and it definitely will happen it's going to explode. I guess the closest you've got to this in terms of an athlete influencer is, is Cristiano Ronaldo and his uh, army of Instagram bots um, who seem to follow him around wherever he goes. But it's that taken to the nth degree, I think, and with a, probably a, a much younger much younger name. The next step, surely podcaster boxing. Do you think we could pull in uh, two million global viewers on the zone? Well, that's if the influencers stop nicking idea and doing podcasts in the first place. But yeah, I'm sure people will want to see us have a fight at some point, George. Well, Dazone, if you are listening, we're we're available to offers, pay-per-view or not. <laughs> have to be some kind of catch weight. And uh, yeah, not sure how it'll work, but maybe more WWE than, uh, than uh, MMA. We can pitch that for one of Sports Pro's next major live events. <laughs> anyway, on to more serious matters. 
Earlier this week, I sat down with Sydney Mazinski, who is the Director of Sport and Culture Events at Explore Edmonton. She joined me from a very snowy Edmonton, looking at some of their recent major events that they've hosted, but also for a wider discussion in what makes a great host destination, why that's so important for not only the local population and the local business sector, but also nationally as a whole. So uh, let's hear from Sydney. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I have to tell you about Sports Pro's Ignition 2023 virtual event, where sports tech comes to life. Join us online on the 8th of February and discover the most cutting-edge innovations in sports tech via a virtual hub of keynote speaker sessions, demo sprints, and tech providers. In addition to expert insight from the likes of the PGA Tour, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Overtime, and Liquidity Team, you'll discover the most disruptive new startups to invest in right now. Register for free today at ignition.sport to network, learn, and engage with your next sports partner. Now back to the podcast. Now, it's not often that I get to brag about the weather conditions here in the UK, but this afternoon I'm delighted to be joined by Cindy Medinsky, who is the Director of Sport and Cultural Events at Explore Edmonton. Now, Cindy, thanks for joining us from Edmonton. As you said, yourself off air, you're in the thick of winter and you've had a few snow-based events that have taken place uh, recently. How's things? Things are great. Thank you so much for, for having me today. And you are right. We are in the thick of winter. January is, uh, you know, a bit of a, a snowy, colder month here in Edmonton, but uh, we love it. And we embrace it. And we are able to to use that weather for those some of those winter sport events. And just coming off of the, the style experience, Big Air World Cup, uh, was was definitely an unforgettable event and uh, make, made memories across the board. I know just from looking a little bit at the event from the outside, it was one that sort of blended snowboard culture with, you know, some of other, you know, local live music and uh, vendors, sort of food and entertainment. Can you give me a little bit of an overview of what the event was and, and when it took place? Yeah, absolutely. So this event was actually four years in the making. Uh, of course, a pandemic in the middle that uh, threw it off a little bit. But uh, we'd been working with Canada Snowboard uh, and some local stakeholders uh, for for four years on on bringing this to life. And essentially, our vision was to be able to embrace Edmonton's you know winter city qualities and and repurpose our fifty six thousand seat Commonwealth Stadium into essentially a big air mountain. Um, so being able to bring the mountain to the center of the city and offer our residents and citizens and visitors that that once in a lifetime experience that uh, you know they'll they'll never forget was something we had in mind and I think we achieved. So everything from the actual event and the big jumps and showing off the athlete's style, hence the style experience. Uh, to, like you said, food and beverage, DJs, entertainment, you know, hospitality opportunities. It, uh, it was really a, a well-rounded event and something we hope to build off of uh, after year one. Hearing you talk of transforming the stadium into essentially a big, big snow park is quite, quite some undertaking. I'm intrigued to understand when it comes to bidding for major events and working with major events as a host city, at what level do those decisions happen? Is that, you know, a plan from the very get-go that this is something that we want to do, we've scoped out that project? Or, you know, does that bidding process happen 
your award and event and then it's really you know putting heads together and understanding how can we activate this in the most exciting possible way yeah i think uh overall we rely on our research our relationships and referrals so when we're evaluating an event like it's very important for us that you know we are aligned with a rights holder or an event organizer so that that's kind of number one is what are those those common objectives or common goals that we can achieve together um, of course we also rely on our our event attraction strategy so looking at events we want to bid on and partners we want to work with, that is really ingrained in our strategy. So if we can position Edmonton internationally as a top sport hosting destination, um, we know that economic impact comes with that. It's almost a symptom of, of those events. So while that's very important, it really is how we can spread the word about Edmonton and, and what we can really do on delivering events. So that process is really, like I said, ingrained in our strategy it has been vetted and approved by, you know, all all different levels of uh, personnel in, in the city. Um, so we feel very confident in the events that we go after and, and know that there will be local support. And when it comes to those partnerships that you're striking with rights holders or sports properties, how early do those take place ahead of the official bidding process? Well, in this case with, with Big Air, I mean, it was upwards of four years. And and that was, again, just based on a referral. Somebody within our sort of circle of events, you know, was was speaking with Canada Snowboard, who wanted to try something new and something different. And because we have that great relationship with our our local partners, that's how that sort of came through. And, you know, we, we could have hosted this probably even earlier, but we wanted to do it right. So that's part of it is making sure that you know, working with that rights holder, we're realistic along the way and making sure that the goals that we set are achievable. So, you know, it really does depend. There's some events that we're securing that it could be two weeks to three months that we're, we are bidding and, and a decision is made. Other times it's four, five, six years, depending on, you know, the scale of the event and and how intense the operation of it can be. And when it comes to sharing those strategic priorities, and as a as a host destination in Edmonton, what are some of the key strategic priorities that you're focusing on as a business and that you want to be embedded at the core of the events that you're hosting? So for Explore Edmonton, because we are the destination marketing and management organization, we're obviously trying to drive tourism to our city uh, and really position Edmonton, like I said, as a as a top sport hosting destination. You know, we we probably aren't one of the the top destinations that even the the regular leisure traveler would have on their their bucket list so we know that we can leverage sport events in a bit of a different way to bring people to our city so i think being able to enhance edmonton's image and reputation uh, is a really big driver for us of course economic impact is huge just making sure that we can impact the visitor economy and bring investment and and really stimulate you know, those local businesses here, that's, that's huge as well. Um, And then of course, that social benefit legacy piece that everybody's trying to measure, everybody's trying to figure out where they fit and how they can do it best. Those are the three. But really, I think the overarching piece is how we can connect the rest of the world to our city. I'm intrigued to understand more about that 
balance really in the relationship between the delivery of an event and securing the legacy of one of those events you talked about the importance of immediate economic impact and the tourism impact that you see but how important is that and how difficult is it to balance that with the need for as you say both an economic and sustainable legacy of the events that you host mm-hmm. well i think obviously the delivery is is very important if we can't deliver a successful event it's not going to be likely that a legacy can really thrive out of that event. So while it is a a balance, you know, we don't want the legacy to be compromised, you know, due to budget or, or the operations or or delivery of an event. So I think it's about setting those realistic goals. We want to be able to achieve a legacy through maybe a multi-year partnership or slowly building up different events um, so that we can again, build year after year and, and again, be realistic. So I think there, there is a balance if we can have really clear goals and, and really clear timelines and milestones. I think that helps everybody be able to, uh, to deliver on that. And how difficult is it to measure the impact when it comes to a legacy? A, a lot of it sounds like, you know, quite soft metrics and, and, and are quite difficult to attribute certainly for years when it comes to a legacy. So how do you set clear metrics and reporting frameworks where you can say, yeah, this is what the legacy or this is the impact that this event has had? Some legacies are very clear and and tangible and others are more of a a feeling and those intangible pieces. You know, you look back to 2002 when we hosted the FIFA Under-19 Women's World Championships. We like to consider Edmonton, I think a lot of people consider Edmonton as the birthplace of women's soccer in Canada. And that's that's hard to measure. You know, it, it's more of a feeling. It's more of a, a long-term looking back, wow, that was an incredible event that then led to us hosting the 2015 Women's World Cup uh, and really having Edmonton as a, a place where women's soccer can can grow and, and really be fostered. So that's something that was, I think, harder to measure. You know, when we look at other legacies that we've, you know, been able to bring in, Edmonton is known, I think, for hosting international triathlon events. So bringing triathlon here for 20 years, you know, we've been able to have a legacy fund out of that. We've been able to strike a, the Edmonton Triathlon Academy uh, where athletes can actually train in Edmonton and, and it's a legacy organization that is now operating all on its own. So I think we just, again, have to kind of be flexible and in, in recognizing what our city needs, what our sport partners need. Um, you know, we're working a lot on that sustainability side as well to, you know, measure our impact and and decrease our footprint on those pieces as well. So still, still working on that measurement piece, I think, uh, at the end of the day. Can you identify and observe that sense of pride that comes from as you said when it comes to like women's soccer for instance having a identifiable footprint when it comes to the development of the sport and seeing how you know women's soccer in particular has really grown to an incredible degree over the last decade do you see a sense of local pride in being a fundamental stage on that journey yeah i I really do i think uh you know, our, our journey through soccer, uh, we've always been huge supporters of it. And whether it's the men's or the women's game, um, you know, it's it's not something where we've got, you know, an MLS team that we can see, you know, the community interest all the time. But when you bring in the men's national team to qualify for the World Cup and 
50,000 plus people come out for two days in the middle of winter. I think that really shows that the community really believes in the sport and uh, and the power of not just soccer, but the power of sport to bring people together. I mean, Edmonton has a history of not only soccer, but of course of hockey being a winter destination, a Canadian winter destination, uh, you know, looking at our, our NHL dynasty and how citizens are so proud of that. Like it, it really is a, a city of pride when it comes to sport. Well, I, I wanted to to look a little bit more at the style experience that you mentioned earlier. Um, it, it sounded and, and it seems to me as if there's a lot of community impact that was at the core of that project. Can you tell me a little bit of, more about some of the partnerships that you struck outside of just that main sporting event and you know some of the headline areas and some of the work you've done there? Absolutely. Well, I think the focus for us in year one, again, was to, you know, create a a realistic goal and, and legacy from that. And a big piece was our Indigenous partnerships. So through the Indigenous Sport Council of Alberta and Canada Snowboard, as well as the Mark McMorris Foundation, we were able to uh, facilitate a donation towards the Indigenous snow- Snowboard Program here in Alberta. So that is a real tangible legacy that had come from that. And being able to incorporate our Indigenous community in all of the events we do is is very important from the get-go. So that, I think, was the partnership and the, the local impact that we are, are most proud of and something that will continue to grow as we host uh, a Big Air World Cup, you know, for, for hopefully years to come in Edmonton. You know, we also have an event development team here at Explore Edmonton, and their primary role is to localize the event and and figure out how we can make sure that our local businesses and and organizations are positively impacted and engaged in these events. So, you know, whether it's setting up a a vendor village uh, full of all local businesses so that it's not just the big ones that get the love, it's those little ones that really rely on some of these projects and uh, some of this exposure. Uh, So it's always about, you know, making sure that our community can access this and and benefit from it in in real ways. How difficult is it to to strike those partnerships and to, you know, bring different aspects of local communities and different subsets of the local community under that one central vision and that one central umbrella that those events provide? Yeah, you know, and I think it takes a lot of legwork at the beginning, but on all sides, everybody is so supportive. You know, the rights holders that come in really want to make sure that they are leaving an impact locally. And we've set that up for them. We've made it easy for them to do that. So it really is an easy yes to incorporate, you know, some of those local pieces for them. And that that's our goal is to, to make things easy. And then on the flip side, you know, we want to show Edmontonians and the local community the value of events, because if they're not supportive of events, then they won't be successful here. So, you know, if we can say, this, this major event's coming in and, and sure there's funding going towards it and a lot of support, um, but there's a lot that's being given back to the community. Uh, so being able to demonstrate that and, and really, uh, you know, sell that vision locally and, uh, and internationally to our rights holders has, we've been successful so far. So when it, when it comes to maybe some of those resistant conversations and having to work to gather local buy-in towards major events, what does that process look like and, and how early does it take place? Yeah, I think especially for major events, I mean, we know that, uh, you know, sport events aren't the only thing that a, a city needs to focus on. And there's a lot of priorities that 
you know, that come first or, you know, that are more urgent. So, you know, sometimes it does take a little bit of creativity, but that's where we really rely again, going back to that strategy and those pillars is events bring economic impact. They're so important to the recovery of our economy and for the growth of our economy. You know, events also have that social impact and that benefit that, you know, not only instills pride and vibrancy throughout our city, but it connects people, connects people locally. It connects, you know, our city to the rest of the world. And then, of course, we're really looking at how we can put Edmonton on the map. And I think that can resonate with a lot of people, although the social pieces are, you know, more prevalent and and obvious and need to be considered. Putting Edmonton on the map is important as well. And I think that does resonate with, you know, our city council, you know, our, our tourism stakeholders. So it, it really is giving that well-rounded look at, at what events can can provide and what value they bring. You mentioned the um, Alberta Indigenous Snowball Program and the donation that was made there. I know we've also touched on some of the local artists that were involved, Indigenous artists as well, playing an important role in the branding of the event and in designing some of the merchandise around the event. Difficult balance to strike between you know, marketing a major internationally relevant event, but also expressing the Edmontonian culture within that event and having a very clear local identity that sits alongside events. So can you talk me through the process of curating those two things side by side and, and how to balance the two things? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, we understand that, you know, IFs and, and rights holders are going to have, you know, some of their their set partners and, you know, those, those commercial opportunities that they can't necessarily compromise on. But I think it has to start from the beginning. So, you know, host cities are in a, I think, a more favorable position than they were maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago, where, you know, they're kind of at the mercy of the rights holder and, and through that whole bid process. But now it's more of a, a discussion, a conversation to figure out where, you know, there can be alignment and, and where both parties can benefit. So we try to bring that conversation on those local partnerships and that local community impact right from the get-go so that there's no surprises and uh, our our rights holders and partners know where we stand on making sure that, you know, events can bring that lasting impact. You know, it's, it's also about finding the right fit too. You know, we don't want to force something onto an event that just doesn't make sense, doesn't make operational sense or, you know, financial sense. So it really is about us doing our homework to figure out, okay, how can we maybe find some, you know, budget relief or how can we, you know, bring an an entertainment element to the event that, you know, they wouldn't have in any other city, but that also allows us to engage some of those local groups. So it really is from, from the beginning, we can just set clear expectations. So, so that everybody knows where, where we stand on that. We've talked quite a lot about maximizing the positive impacts of major events, but another important consideration is minimizing the negative impacts. And a lot of that surrounds sustainability and the environmental impact of those events. So how is that something that you manage as you know a clear priority as a business yeah i mean like a lot of other destinations we're still working on this it's it's going to be a long road but we know we have a huge responsibility uh you know towards climate resilience and making sure that our events are sustainable Uh, we have a dedicated sustainability team at explore edmonton that looks 
at events through that sustainability lens. And it's trying to figure out how we can, you know, again, slowly build, set realistic expectations, but slowly build towards, you know, offsetting our footprint. So, you know, a great example is we've got the Responsible Events Program um, that kind of weaves legacy into sustainability. So, you know, if an event comes through and there's leftover food, for example, there's ways for us to make sure that that's donated. And although it seems like a really small piece, it has a huge impact. You know, we are also working with partners. We just did a pilot last year with Volleyball Canada and we did a waste audit to figure out what is their waste and how can they reduce it year after year. Things like that where we can lead the way and lead those programs, make it easy for, you know, our partners to to get on board. But it's hard when you're you're talking about, you know, funding these these programs too. So we know we have to step up in that way uh, in order to lead the way. To delve into that a bit more, I think a lot of people see major events and they look at some of the obvious areas where, you know, sustainability might fall short, whether that might be single-use plastics or the sort of carbon footprint. But what you're talking about illustrates the importance of working with your partners and that actually there are so many different stakeholders that are involved in these events. I'm keen to understand how willing event partners are in opening that conversation and into making clear commitments and, and pledges to work with you on delivering more sustainable events. It's funny you bring that up because we are kind of in the middle of some of the sales training on how to incorporate those sustainability questions up front. So it has become part of our sales process is how we can ask the right questions to our partners to figure out where they stand and what they're what they're willing to invest and how far they're willing to go and of course we we want to push that but it is a fine balance we have experience with some rights holders um, you know for example the professional triathlete organization you know they have a commitment to sustainability and they are working on a program to make sure that their events are sustainable so it's great to see that there are actual programs in place with some of these these ifs to make sure that that's a commitment. You know, others are are not, it's not at the forefront and we understand, especially still trying to, uh, you know, recover from the pandemic. You know, the, the number one thing is the event delivery. You know, we're, we're trying to ease into those conversations so that it doesn't seem like a huge task. And, uh, you know, it, it's just about asking those right questions up front. So that's what we're trying to do in this process. And how has the the pandemic impacted that process? You talked a lot about the style experience being a delayed project, nearly four years in the making. Has the obvious financial implications of of breaks like that sort of changed the strategy um, with Explore Edmonton and also changed some of the priorities that events have going forward? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's made us realize as a, a host city that you know, we, we probably have to take a bit of a bigger role in making sure events can be successful. You know, again, all of the, the partners we work with, most of them are, are nonprofit, as are we. But it, it just means that, you know, through this recovery, resources are limited. Costs are higher than ever across the world. It is becoming even trickier to host events and break even. So I think if we can be creative, find ways to cost save and also step in with, you know, whether it's additional value in kind or additional resources, 
um, you know, that's what we're prepared to do because we want events to happen here and we want them, you know, to, to go very well. So I think it's about us, us stepping up to kind of fill that gap that, you know, maybe other, other cities aren't necessarily prepared to do. To tie that back into some of the sustainable areas we talked about, there's often a a balance that needs to be struck between the cost implications of delivering a more sustainably focused event. Um, what's that balance like from your perspective? Is it an either or? You know, if, if we want to be more sustainable, we're going to have to to budget for that, or or do you see those two things as coexisting more than anything? Yeah, I think they they need to coexist. You know, and it, again, it's about sort of that slow build because it, it, there are huge financial implications, obviously, to taking, you know, a sustainability route with events. You know, we do budget that in and, and Explorerwinton does invest in that because, you know, it's important for us to establish benchmarks and figure out how we can do better. And so there's definitely motivation for us, you know, to invest in there. But uh, I think it, it has to be, again, that slow build. And there's other ways that we can, you know, bring in, you know, value and kind that doesn't necessarily cost anything, right? And it's also about making sure that our local businesses and our local partners are committed to that as well, so that we can figure out how we can deliver a, an event that doesn't print a ton of postcards or something like that, but still, you know, gets the word out or has, you know, has an impact in other ways. So I think it's just about being creative and making sure, like you said, they can coexist. And when it comes to the commercial impact of those sustainable efforts, I know you mentioned the Professional Triathletes Organization. They're, I think, an example of the commercial opportunities that a more sustainable approach can bring. You know, a wealth of new commercial partners with very distinct goals and aims. Do you see the move to delivering more sustainable events is opening up a whole new doorway and a whole new pathway towards you know, commercial opportunities that are more locally aligned? Yeah, I think that's something we haven't really, you know, considered too much, but it's it's an important question because like you said, there is likely a huge opportunity for that when you go down the road of sustainability. There's more and more organizations out there that want to make sure that they're doing their part. And if we can perpetuate that and figure out how to support our event partners in those commercial opportunities that are are sustainably responsible, I think that's you know, that's amazing, but it, it's definitely something we we probably need to to consider a little bit further. But that can definitely give a, a host city a competitive edge um, when you're talking about those commercial opportunities. So thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what's next? What are some of the things you've got that are coming up that you're particularly excited for, you know, both from an event point of view, but also how your approach and strategy is developing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, our strategy has, has, of course, evolved over the last you know few years. Uh, and again, going back to positioning Edmonton globally as that major you know sport event host, our whole you know idea is based around repetition and making sure that cities are seeing that Edmonton is consistently delivering an incredible event, and that rights holders are you know impressed with the level of support and guidance uh, and investment and and everything that we we bring to the table. We actually just this week were announced as the one of the hosts for the FIBA 3x3 World Tour Masters, which is very exciting, um, being able to host that top tier level 3x3 basketball event. We've committed heavily to basketball in our city. 
with 515 and 3x3. So that is really exciting for us to be able to work with FIBA and our local Alberta basketball organization there. We also just this week were announced on the calendar for the Volleyball World Beach Pro Tour. So we're hosting a challenge level event this summer as well. And being able to host, you know, those circuit events and do them really well. And, and hopefully year after year, looking at that multi-year kind of partnership will help us, you know, not only build on the operational excellence of these events, but be able to build on the marketing, be able to build on the opportunity to bring visitors in. So I think that's really key for us. We're also hosting the NHL Heritage Classic in October. So that's an outdoor NHL game. Um, it'll be the Battle of Alberta. So for any hockey fans, uh, it's it's the, the Edmonton Oilers versus the Flames, which has uh, been a decades-long rivalry. An outdoor game, again, repurposing our, our 56,000-seat Commonwealth Stadium, having a winter event that can really show the grit and pride that Edmontonians have. And then again, we hope to round out the year uh, with a big air World Cup and, and really supporting our partners at Canada Snowboard at FIS and, and building on that. So we've got some some great summer events and winter events really showcasing Edmonton as that four season destination. So I think uh, 2023 will be a great year. It certainly sounds there's lots uh, lots to get your teeth into for sports fans around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, Cindy, thank you very much for taking the time for joining us today. It's been great to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.